This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Show. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut Babette. Andy and I would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation from whose land we are broadcasting at 3CR and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation where we can be heard at Radio Skid Row. Millions of people from faith groups round the world will be sounding the alarm for climate action on March the 11th. It's the 11th hour for climate action, so 11 a.m. on the 11th of March, and it heralds a year of action leading up to the United Nations Conference in Glasgow. We'll talk to a Buddhist, a Muslim, and a Christian, and you will be surprised how radical they are. And then we'll go to the Transitions Film Festival. We'll hear about three films, Once You Know, Beyond Zero, and Youth on Strike. The long interview tonight will be with director Rob Innes and one of the actors in his documentary, Maisha. But the other films, those two other films, I've got a very long interview with each of those directors that you'll hear later in March. I've had so much fun talking to those people. Really, they are advanced thinkers and exploring all the avenues that climate action takes. And it's, it's very vast now. Climate action is involving wider circles of people, too. The students in the film Youth on Strike, they want to be at the decision-making table, not just because they're young, but because we want to hear what they have to say about their future. The faith leaders want us to remember the sacredness of the earth and its people. As one of them told me, we're all deeply ignorant of our interconnectedness with the rest of the world, so... Let's sound the alarm. Sounding the alarm. The Australian religious response to climate change is a multi-faith network. They are people committed to action on climate change. This year, Global Action will be launched on the 11th of March at the 11th hour. That day, cathedrals will be ringing their bells and other faiths will be sounding the alarm to protect sacred people and the sacred earth. Listeners might be feeling a bit uneasy. What's climate change got to do with sacredness and people of faith? But you will be surprised. Although in some places climate action is being sort of stalled by religious people, or that's how I see it, the three ARC members who you will hear now are way ahead. Our guests tonight are Tejapala Rawls, who is a Buddhist, Fahima Badrulhisham, who is a Muslim, and Dr. Byron Smith, who is an ecological ethicist and an Anglican pastor. Welcome to you all. Tejapala, this year, let's start with President Biden. He hit the ground running, and some people wrote to me that they were in tears, that just this relief that something was happening. But what was your response to his climate actions? Well, I think this year is there's finally reason for hope. It's very much the 11th hour on the climate. This is, there is no doubt about that. But what President Biden is doing on the climate, make no mistake, is ambitious, is bold, and he's getting on with it right now, is giving me hope for not only what can happen internationally, but what will happen in terms of pressure starting to come onto the, to the Morrison government. I'll get onto that in a second. But in America, what he's immediately done is put on, put in place a, a halt on all fossil fuel exploration on federal land in the United States, which is about 20 or 25% of all land in America. And they're going to review that with a view to permanently halting that. They have stopped all federal subsidies to fossil fuel industries. That's massive. I can only imagine what that might be like if, they, if the federal government did something like that here. They've rejoined the Paris Agreement. They have stopped the Keystone XL pipeline, like saying stop the Adani mine. That's how significant it is. It's massive. They have decided they're going to make the entire federal vehicle fleet electric and have dedicated 30% of American 
land and sea area to conservation. Three zero, that's not federal land, that's all land. So that is a, a you're having to do an awful lot of that on private land in order to be able to do that. But that's a huge, huge deal. So right at the moment, and, at the, and in addition to all of that, they are trying to get through both uh, houses of Congress about $2 trillion worth of spending on uh, a clean jobs, a green, clean jobs, economic recovery plan. That's trillion with a T, folks. So there's a lot of money. Uh, that may or may not happen because they've got the, the thinnest of majorities in the Senate. But let's wait and see. Well, how will it help for people of many faiths to sound the alarm for a year of action? It's all leading up to Glasgow and the climate meeting in November. But listeners may think, well, what do faith people have to do with this? Sure. Well, first of all, around 80% of people around the world have identified as having a faith of some kind, and over half of Australians do. So uh, even though um, many in the climate movement are decidedly secular and fair enough, it's not necessarily what the population as a whole looks like. And second, there are people of different faith traditions have values that we hold very, very deeply indeed. As a Buddhist, I believe in compassion for all sentient beings. Now, you can't really, I don't think, mean that if you, if you don't do anything about the fact that there's something that's threatening the existence of all sentient beings right now. So when you've got sort of non-negotiable values like that, people can get extremely motivated. And yes, we're used to seeing particularly conservative Christians in the United States getting in the way of climate action. But that is not even all Christians in the United States. That's just conservative Christians in one country. The overall, most people of faith are very, very strong on this issue. Uh, and most obvious example being Pope Francis with his now very famous encyclical, Laudato Si, which is possibly the most uncompromising document I've ever read on the need for climate action. On March the 11th, what will happen at the 11th hour? You've been very busy. You're part of ARC, you know, the team organising this. And what will happen on the 11th hour globally? Thanks. We're part of a network called Green Faith International, which is now operating in 14 countries, with organisations like ours. And we are asking places of worship to do two things on the day, on March the 11th at 11 o'clock. And that is, one, do something to sound the alarm at your place of worship. So that might be ring your bells if you've got them. And like you said, there's going to be churches and cathedrals doing that. If you are in the Jewish tradition, you may want to sound a note on a shofar. We're asking Muslim imams to do a special call of the azan, the call to prayer at 11 a.m., which is not a traditional time to do that. So it will stand out. We are asking Buddhists uh, to do something, maybe sound the alarm silently because that's what we're good at. And we'll be having meditation uh, protests. One of those will be outside the office of Josh Frydenberg in Melbourne. And by the way, there's going to be a multi-faith uh, protest outside the office of Scott Morrison in Cronulla. So if you can make it 11 a.m. outside Scott Morrison's office, please turn up. And they'll be singing traditional songs, hymns that have been adapted for the purpose. So that's one thing. The other thing is we're asking people to sign a, a very bold new statement on the climate. The statement is not a motherhood and apple pie statement. It's got demands in there like wealthy nations need to hit net zero emissions by the year 2030. Now, that's a kind of Greta Thunberg level of ambition being signed by. I can't give the game away yet as to who the signatories are, but some of the signatories are very, very high level, globally recognized faith leaders. And we're asking as many people of faith, whether they're ordained or a faith leader or not, to sign that statement. So if you just go to sacredpeoplesacredearth.org, you can sign up for both those things. It's very easy to be angry, I think, at the business giants and the governments who are hanging on to fossil fuels. You talked about conservatives getting in the way, but there's actual people putting money into disinformation and money into staying the same just for their business interests. And as a Buddhist, um, you know, it's not really recommended to get angry. Can you turn that anger into something more effective? Absolutely. I mean, anger is just it's a, it's a state of mind with a lot of energy in it. Um, people often say you need anger. Yes and no. I think you need energy. If you can transmute that and anger into something more constructive, but it's still got the same energy, so much the better. I guess from my point of view, there's two things which my Buddhist practice can sometimes help me with when it comes to this. One of them is the, the centrality of the mind. Buddhism places a huge emphasis on acknowledging, being aware of your states of mind, because it's the states of mind that you speak and act and out of that will ultimately will determine what happens. And the second thing is that 
just how I see the problem in the first place. I don't see this problem as, you know, the bad people over there who are getting in the way. I see it as we're all caught in what Buddhism calls samsara, which is a, a, a loop of reactivity made up of poisoned states of mind that we have somehow fallen into and we need to get out of. We're all in that state, more or less. We've all experienced greed. We all experience hate. We're all deeply ignorant of our own interconnectedness with the rest of the world. Those are common experiences. It just so happens some people have got a lot of greed and they're well organized and they have a lot of money and that's creating enormous problems for the rest of us. But they're not better or worse or, you know, they're not, they're not, they're not the bad people versus the good people. It's all of us in this cycle of reactivity and we're just trying to get out of that. Well, that's a profound answer. I hope listeners will send us messages and I'll pass them on to you if they have some questions on it. But I think we'll move to now to Fahima. She's with us on this call. She's an architect in Sydney, and she's one of those people who make projects happen. We've had many Zoom meetings around ARC, and she sort of always has a smile on her face and makes it all seem easy. But I would like to ask her how this global multi-faith group will reach different people than the usual climate activists. I see climate change as like this problem with multiple tentacles so it stands to reason for me that the solution to climate change has to be as vast and as diverse as the problems themselves so i'm hoping that with this sort of day of action or in fact year of action that people see people of you know so many different faiths and different denomination uh, within those um, different faiths and people of like various ethnicities and nationalities sort of wanting to achieve these really, really ambitious demands that's outlined in the statement. I'm hoping that people will realise that we do have a common goal. We do realise that the problem is complex and we need all of us to come together and contribute what we can to, to the solution. So um, you, were, you talked a bit earlier about dirty finances that corporations and governments are involved in. Well, there's options for clean finance that's profitable that we kind of like want to promote. Other positive actions that we can take as individuals and then individuals affecting communities and, and, and governments. So, yeah, I think I'm hoping that the diversity will be an important thing that people will take away from the day. Certainly that rings a bell with the Beyond Zero Emissions people because they're, a lot of them are architects or the CEO is an architect and new materials, you know, green materials. It doesn't need to be controversial. It can just be a transition to better ways of doing things and green, you know, the electric vehicles, healthy for everybody as well as affecting climate change. But let's come back to this religious thing. How does being a Muslim help you in persevering with climate action? Because I think that's the hard thing. You know, a lot of people pick it up and then they just get too disillusioned because they were naive in the beginning about the political process. They didn't realise that MPs won't just give you what you ask them the first day you go there. What does being a Muslim do for you when you persevere like you do? I often wonder how long I can last as a, as a campaigner. And, you know, because like to Tupala touch on, it's sort of, it's a lot of energy. You know, the, the angry Muslim trope is not helpful for anybody. So I try to be professional and, and uplifting and kind of like on the ball. So I think from, from my faith, I mean, we, we have a, a great sort of example in the prophet where he is one person who through really, really intense persecution and, and difficulty created a new community and I think that kind of movement building is you know from from my own faith tradition from from the great prophet nonetheless is is an important story to fall back on for me personally and you know I have a lot of friends who come from displaced minorities from around the world like um, Uyghur people for example and Palestinians and they have survived for so many decades of state-sponsored oppression and I yeah I get inspiration from my friends as well. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, look, recovering from the pandemic could be an opportunity for a bold transformation. I think in Australia we've had a much easier experience of the pandemic and we can think clearly. We, it's up to us, I think, to lead a bit on the thinking because we haven't had so many deaths and such fear around it. But it's a big opportunity for, for bold transformations away from fossil fuels, but also I think a chance to be more connected and committed to life on Earth. And a lot of the Aboriginal speakers I interview are starting to say, no, 
we have a different worldview from you. We have to be connected. We have kinship with the earth. They're talking about these are our relatives, not just the emu, but the river. You know, they talk like that. And I'm starting to think more along those lines. And I wonder how has the COVID pause affected your thinking about our future on earth? Yeah, well, I think there's compelling evidence that points to the fact that these zoonotic viruses and pandemics are actually caused by our desecration of the natural world. So these viruses live in the wild and have um, animal hosts. But when these animal hosts and the natural environment disappears due to human activities, the virus needs a new host and therefore it makes its way to us. And it stands to reason for me that this is not the first pandemic that we will encounter. Then further pushes my drive to preserve the natural environment, because I think that's the baseline that we have to maintain. And I think Aboriginal people are right in that country is is sacred and it it needs to be defended, it needs to be protected, because when it disappears, like the, the cracks in our society, um, gets exposed and 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 wide and, and it's widened through you know not just climate change but also these like horrific intense global pandemics. Um, so I think that effective and meaningful solidarity with um, Aboriginal people and other um, First Nations people who want to preserve their land and their way of life is an important foundation to climate action. Only way to do the healing is come together and getting out there in that environment. When you compare an old growth forest compared to a forest which is regrowing after a disturbance like logging, they're actually quite different ecosystems. Generally, like older, wetter forests slow down the path of fire, and this is actually quite a well-known phenomenon. Historically, these big, large fires have been quite rare, but what we've seen in the last 20 years is they're becoming quite a lot more common. So we've had three in the last 20 years. This is definitely because of climate change, which is making our ecosystems a lot drier and the fire weather more intense. We need to keep radical voices on air subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. Our next guest is Dr. Byron Smith. He's an ecological ethicist and an Anglican pastor. He also has his own podcast. So welcome, Byron. First of all, tell us about the Good Earth podcast. I'd like to know what you've learned about climate action from your guests. Yeah, hi, Vivian, and thanks for having me on. Good Dirt podcast is a a news review podcast, uh, and particularly trying to join the dots between climate and other issues. Uh, trying to understand how this uh, climate disruption is not just one thing going on uh, on our planet at the moment, but is actually very closely tied together with a whole range uh, of other serious complex issues that we face from inequality and gender and racial discrimination through to political corruption, uh, a whole range of other health and environmental issues that are all tied up together in a bundle. You're, you're an Anglican pastor and an ethicist so you spend a lot of time in that sort of spiritual and cerebral realm I would suppose and I wonder how have your spiritual beliefs sustained you as we're now seeing ecosystems nearly collapsing and collapsing. Yeah indeed some some systems are actually collapsing uh, before our eyes Uh, for instance uh, the Great Barrier Reef and tropical coral reefs uh, around the world and uh, uh, you know, last summer in Australia with the, the black summer uh, fires uh, where fire was uh, damaging forests that have not seen fire for thousands of years. So, yes, very much ecosystems are already collapsing uh, and being degraded. And uh, I, I, when I think of spirituality uh, as a Christian, I don't just think of the cerebral aspects of it, the beliefs. It's an interconnected set of beliefs and practices. Um, and and in particular, uh, as a member of many privileged groups, as a you know white middle class male, able bodied, well educated, there's there's a journey for me to come to 
understand the wounds of the world more deeply when I can find it very easy to ignore many of them because they don't apparently touch me directly. Uh, so part of my spirituality is the discipline of learning what I should be paying attention to and trying to pay less attention to the powerful and the privileged um, and those who are doing all right and who are actually benefiting from the world as it is and to pay more attention to those on the margins, those who are getting crushed under the wheels of history, those who are getting excluded. That takes many forms, but in, amidst a climate crisis, that means paying attention to the communities that seeing their futures being washed away as the oceans rise to mm. communities that are having their food security threatened to communities struggling under heat waves and, uh, you know, disruption of weather patterns and uh, and also paying attention to the more than human communities. Uh, some of those very ones we were mentioning before, the coral reefs and the forests burning. And so rather than just listening to the, you know, the, the powerful men who rule the world and what the latest uh, outrageous tweet is, learning to listen to the voices that don't get airtime. Yeah. Well, last week we talked to an Aboriginal speaker who said, Cato Muir, the eminent man, and he said, look, we just have a completely different worldview from Western people and we have ceremonies and rituals which really clothe our science. You know, it's passed down to us as rituals that we do, like to, to make rain or to, you know, return health to some part of the forest, but but it's... It's science, really. It's just closed-in ritual. And I'm thinking that this Green Faith International, this global sounding the alarm, is something like that. It's a new ritual, isn't it? Sounding the alarm, but it doesn't matter if you're Muslim or Christian or or non-believer, but you understand about what's a threat. So could you just talk about this idea of internationally a global year of action leading up to the COP. Now, that's a much more hard-headed thing at the COP in, um, what's it, Glasgow. It's, that's Yeah, they're going to have to renegotiate all those um, um, unambitious goals they had so that we don't boil the planet. What, what, do you, what are your thoughts about that, about this global side of it? Yeah, I mean, we, we're facing an unprecedented challenge, uh, not simply from a scientific point of view, but from a perspective of international cooperation. In order to maintain a planet that is habitable for future generations, that has space for humanity uh, to flourish and for all of God's creatures to flourish, we actually need to work together as a global community. And we have to do that amidst the uh, glaring inequalities and injustices and power imbalances between the wealthy and the less wealthy world, uh, with all the scars of uh, centuries of colonialism uh, amidst the crumbling of an American empire and the rising of new powers. Amidst all that, we are asked to cooperate on a project which has a very tight deadline. We can't keep on putting this off. Mm. Pretty much what the world has been doing for the last few decades. Mm. Uh, We've had had, uh, certainly enough scientific understanding to recognise that this is a genuine real threat that we need to do something about for probably 40 years at least. But predominantly the primary action of the world's governments, uh, or I should say of the world's most powerful governments, has been delay. Uh, because, again, it's those voices at the margins from the nations that are already suffering the most and have the least resources to cope with it that have been calling most strongly for uh, more ambitious action on the basis of uh, justice and on the basis of a, a genuine deep concern for the future of us all. And Australia really, I think, has a, a misguided self-perception of our role in that uh, history of the last 40 years of uh, these negotiations. Australia has not covered itself in glory, far from it. We've actually been one of the most recalcitrant, least productive, most foot-dragging nations that there are. Yes, there are nations who are more powerful than us, with a larger footprint than us, who bear even more responsibility than us. But for the size that we are, there is almost not a nation that has done a worse job than us. I think at the core of it is that we are a land with immense reserves of fossil fuels, uh, of dirty energies, particularly coal and gas for us, less so oil. Uh, but we are a coal uh, supergiant uh, on the world stage. Um, uh, with 0.3% of the global population, Australia has something like 8 to 9% of global fossil fuel reserves measured by carbon content, which means that we have a massively oversized role to play when it comes to uh, carrying our fair share of the load. 
and yet we have been at the very back of the pack in doing that. And that's been from both sides uh, mm. of politics um, over decades, and the fossil fuel industry has had an oversized uh, influence on our politics. Politicians of, of both stripes have really been cowed, I think, by the demands of the fossil fuel industry for a long time. That has been gradually shifting, and as more uh, Australians awaken to the scale of that influence and start to fight back in all kinds of ways through divestment campaigns, through direct action, through um, uh, mass movements like the Stop Adani movement, the recognition that the contributions to Australian society of the coal industry in particular are not as large as the coal industry claims. Uh, mm. They have been significant, but they are a part of Australia's past that cannot be part of our future in anything like their current form if the whole planet is to have a future. So our role in this global context is really to get a grip on our dirty energy industries, to tame them uh, and ultimately to phase them out as rapidly as, and humanely as possible, providing a just transition for, again, the most vulnerable in that process, the, <coughs> the workers at the bottom of the food chain, um, who have genuine, you know, economic concerns for their personal well-being, but the genuine economic and ecological and geopolitical concerns for the well-being of a habitable planet uh, override that. And so it's imperative that our leaders at every level put in place plans for a just transition for those workers in order that that industry can be wound up as rapidly as possible. You mentioned delay, and we all know how they have delayed, but I'm really delighted that these faith groups from around the world, and especially in Australia, I think it's 80 or 90 uh, in Australia that have already signed up to take some action like this, I'm delighted that they're devoted to climate action, but religion can also pull people backwards. And I'd like to know, how do you talk to conservatives who see climate action as distasteful, as political, and they really are pulling the chain backwards? And a lot of those people are in power. A lot of those people are in our parliament. You know, they're signed up Christians or or they have belief systems and ideology. Maybe let's make it a bit broader ideologies that actually – make them just not even think about the catastrophic future that you and I know is actually just waiting. We're making it unless we do something now. Yeah. Uh, how do I respond to that? Always as a Christian, I go back to Jesus. I don't see someone who just confirmed the powerful in their power or who uh, said that the status quo was all okay and that God's in charge, so don't stress about it which is the message that really I hear from a lot of those more uh, conservative people. I see someone who spoke the truth, who stood in that prophetic tradition um, of criticising the abuse of power and who was willing to stand in radical solidarity with the poor. Yeah, but the Prime Minister talks that language too. He believes in Christ and he... You know, he, President Trump was there with his Bible in front of a church. Language of faith in order to buttress power is as old as religion. Um, that is very often been the sociological function of religion. And that was the, the function of the dominant religion in Jesus' own day was that the language of faith was used to buttress power. And the reason that Jesus was put to death historically is that he exposed the hypocrisy of those religious and political leaders in their abuses of power. The the fact that Jesus himself and the tradition that he began can also be exploited in order to buttress power, not surprising is what I'm trying to say, but I think that um, following in the footsteps of Jesus means recognising that pattern of abuse of religious power uh, and standing against it in the name of Christ uh, in his footsteps. Well, I'm glad we've got that out of the way because I think that's something that sticks in the mind of people. These are our leaders. They're professing this. And, and if you are at all progressive and, you, and you're integrated like these Aboriginal people I'm, talk, I'm talking about, that you know, they're totally sincerely related to the land and horrified by what we're doing to it, then you just really wonder how to cut through. So I think this arc you know, year of action is going to have many different sorts of actions, but it will be a way of cutting through this. And it's particularly, uh, like I was saying, listening to the voices on the margins uh, is more important than listening to the powerful voices. So even as a Christian, I seek to have my own faith shaped in conversation with people like that. And and, and so that's why I'm, I'm privileged to be a part of a group called Common Grace, uh, which is led by a wonderful 
uh, Waka Waka Woman, Brooke Prentice. It, it is it is really important that the the, the voices uh, of those who have for too long been marginalised and ignored, uh, that we pay more attention to their experience, their insights, their wisdom, and their ongoing connection to country than the attention we might pay to someone like Scott Morrison or Rupert Murdoch or, or others who, who wield so much power. Yep. Thank you very much. So we've been talking to Byron Smith. He's an ecological ethicist and an Anglican pastor, also a podcaster. So thank you for talking to us. Thanks, Vivian. Now, we've heard from three speakers this evening, an Anglican, a Buddhist, and a Muslim, but there are many more faiths in this green faith group, and people just thinking ethically and thinking spiritually, I think, are very welcome in this large movement. They're sounding the alarm on the 11th of March, on at the 11th hour, which is 11 a.m. So just in summary, Fahima, could you just tell us what is the Muslim community doing or any other members of the art community, you know, what are they doing literally, what are they doing and how can people join up? Well, there's a Muslim group that's going out to um, their favourite spot in nature and reading a passage from the Quran to do with the um, environment. And, um, yeah, we will all upload our videos um, at the same time at um, 11 a.m. on the day. And um, I know a Muslim man who's part of a cycling group. And I said, oh, why don't Muslim mammals go and, like, <laughs> ride around and ring their bells <laughs> for 11 of March? <laughs> so I think humor is important. I think yeah. humor cuts through a lot of, like, the seriousness of what we're doing. And it sort yeah. of, like, enhances narratives about our aims and just tangible actions. So... Yes, we're not taking this lying down. <laughs> Tejapala, <laughs> what, what about you? Just explain to us in summary what you'd like to say to people about this big day of action. Please do join us on the 11th of March. So far, around 80 places of worship in Australia have signed up. We're confident we're going to get people in every state and territory have signed up to, to sound the alarm in some way. So if you would like to register your place of worship on the day, I know this is close to March the 11th, but please do get involved if you go to our website, it's ARC, that's A-R-R-C-C.org.au forward slash global. And just scroll to the bottom and there's a Google form there and you can sign up your place of worship and get involved that way. And also you can sign the statement right there on our website as well. So please come along, do something to, to sound the alarm at your place of worship. If your, play, if your church has got a bell, please ring it. If you've got instruments that you normally play, please play them. We're asking every single person to upload a 60-second video of your action and put it on social media on the day. Uh, and we think we're going to get a lot of media, a lot of social media. So it's awrc.org.au forward slash global. Okay, in summary, we're having a year of action following this, but the actions will be revealed little by little as we go along. But it's leading up to a, a conference in Glasgow called the COP26. Tejapala, just fill us in on why that's so important. COP26 is the next really big meeting to do with the climate since the Paris Agreement itself was signed in 2015. Under the Paris Agreement, every single country has to upgrade its pledges every five years as to its ambition. Now, around the world, they, they made all these pledges back in 2015, and if you add up the pledges, you get to about two, 2.8 or 3 degrees worth of warming, which is catastrophic. And nonetheless, the overarching aim is to get to below zero, preferably below 1.5 degrees. The pledges don't add up to that. Every five years, they, re they review them. Now, if we don't have many five-year blocks left. I would say we don't have another one. And so this is the first one. So what, how much of those pledges get upgraded to? Upgraded is extremely important, critically important. So the time between now and November the 1st, when that uh, meeting starts, is going to be our year of action. Uh, so we'll be pushing very, very hard for the Australian government to go into that with much, much higher climate ambition. Uh, at the moment, we've got a, we've got a coalition government who knows what government will have by that point, um, because there may or may not be an election in between. But certainly, uh, that's that's the that's the mission: go into COP26 in Glasgow with much higher ambition. Our civilization is being sacrificed for the opportunity of a very small number of people to continue making enormous amounts of money. Our biosphere is being sacrificed so that rich people in countries like mine can live in luxury. It is the sufferings of the many which pay for the luxuries of the few. 
The year 2078, I will celebrate my 75th birthday. If I have children, maybe they will spend that day with me. Maybe they will ask me about you. Maybe they will ask why you didn't do anything while there still was time to act. You say you love your children above all else, and yet you are stealing their future in front of their very eyes. Until you start focusing on what needs to be done, rather than what is politically possible, there is no hope. We cannot solve a crisis without treating it as a crisis. We need to keep the fossil fuels in the ground, and we need to focus on equity. And if solutions within this system are so impossible to find, then maybe we should change the system itself. We have not come here to beg world leaders to care. You have ignored us in the past and you will ignore us again. We have run out of excuses and we are running out of time. We have come here to let you know that change is coming, whether you like it or not. The real power belongs to the people. Here is just a taste of two films you can see at the Transitions Film Festival. They are just snippets from my interviews with Emmanuel Capelin and Nathan Havey, who will be on the Climate Action Show during the month in their full interviews. Their films are Once You Know and Beyond Zero. And you can get your films from the Transition Film Festival this year online. I think it's $9 each film, or you can get a, a 10 film pass. It's something wonderful. You won't see these films later, and this is a marvellous opportunity to see really advanced films. Nathan Havey is with us from the United States. His film, Beyond Zero, is on at the Transitions Film Festival. It's all online this year, so listeners, you will have no problem getting a ticket. Welcome, Nathan. Tell us what it's like where you are right now. Sure. Um, it is uh, uh, just coming out of a big cold snap. In I'm in Boulder, Colorado, uh, and we have uh, a quite a lot of snow predicted for this evening and tomorrow. So that's 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 where we are at the moment. Nathan's film is about an old style carpet factory called Interface, and its founder Ray Anderson. And listeners might remember Paul Hawkins spoke to us when he published his book Drawdown. And this is Paul Hawkins' comment on Interface. He said, when it was an old factory, he said it sucked up petroleum-based raw materials for breakfast, lunch and dinner. Its finished product lasted little more than a decade. And at that point, it will be ripped out and discarded, joining five billion pounds of carpet each year in landfill, where it would remain for 10,000 years. Now, Anderson read Hawkins' book called Ecology of Commerce, and uh, apparently his thinking evolved. Nathan, tell us what happened next when the owner realised he needed to take some climate action. Sure, just just another piece of of, of colour on this. Of, at the time, before Ray read um, Paul's book, there was a sales boast uh, that that they would make uh, that uh, you could take a piece of interface carpet, you could put it in a pile of compost and leave it there for a few seasons and take it out again, and nothing would have happened to it. <laughs> that was that was that was a sales boast, right? And so um, Ray reads Paul's book, and uh, what happened was what what Ray came to call his spear in the chest moment uh, where, where he, he was an engineer by training and, and his engineer's brain just sort of accepted the case that Paul Hawken makes in that book, which is that you know, all of Earth's major life support systems are in decline and that the, the, the chief culprit uh, for that is, is industry. And Ray, as, as a, a captain of industry, the, the founder that created this company, uh, he stood there indicted. He said his, his quote is, I, I stood indicted as a plunderer of the earth. And so um, the reason he read the book was because he was asked to make an environmental vision speech for a brand new environmental task force at Interface. And um, he read this book and came up with this incredible environmental vision. You know, he was sweating it before that. No idea what to do. But but he, you know. People walked into that meeting expecting a little recycling, um, but what Ray laid out is essentially a complete transformation of the industrial economy as we know it. 
Once You Know is the name of Emmanuel Kaplan's film at the Transition Film Festival. He's speaking to me from France. What I loved in this film is Emmanuel taking us to meet people like Dr. Salim Ulhaq in Bangladesh and Richard Heinberg in the USA. These are people I've interviewed, and just to hear how they're carrying on their climate work lifted my heart. Emmanuel finds in them the same courage and energy that I noticed, and he asks them how you can live once you know. One of the things that you show in your film is um, transition towns, and they are exploring new ways of cooperating, and I think they're kind of under the radar. They're not protesters. They're quietly doing something new, probably something quite old as well. And I wonder, is this a form of climate action for you, and does it bring out the best in people? Absolutely. Um, earlier we were speaking about Jonah Macy, who recommended me to interview uh, Susan Moser. Uh, Joanna has um, brought it very simply. She said, or, or boiled it down very, to very simple uh, ideas, and, and, and I love it. She says, we need to have a thriving world or a more uh, sustainable world. We need um, three pillars of action. And one is... Um, holding actions, actions that uh, draw red lines and say, we will not go beyond these boundaries. And, and these are, you know, activism and protest and, 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 and being against something that needs to stop destruction of ecosystem services uh, or destruction of a stable climate that makes everything else possible. And then we also need uh, a change of, of consciousness. We need education, you know, the kind of work you're doing, and we need a new narrative and, 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 and giving meaning to all these changes uh, of this great turning we're in. And then the third part of the, the work, which is the one you just mentioned, is uh, alternatives, uh, offering uh, different ways of, of doing things, um, changing systems, uh, whether they are food systems, um, communication systems, transportation systems, transports. And and this is really what I try to do in the film, uh, even though it's not said explicit, explicitly, is we see the change of consciousness of one character, which is me. We also need, sorry, we have my, my son coming with his radio. <laughs> his own little portable radio. And I uh, hope uh, it's not disturbing the, the, the recording. And so those three pillars of action that Jonah Macy talks about, I try to represent in the film. Constructing alternatives is, is not sexy. It takes a long time. It's about working with your neighbors on a very long-term basis. Change is very incremental. But that's, this is very, very necessary work. And in the village where I live, called Sayon, which is at the foot of the Alp Mountains, we are really trying to work on how do we reinvent today uh, or reinvent tomorrow while we still have to deal with today. And, you know, I think that's really interesting. It's just confronting reality. So change is very slow, but we've been able to, we had a, a number of citizens who presented themselves at the last elections and who won the elections. And so we've had a uh, participatory democracy platform from which to take decisions throughout our, the six year mandate. And that really has changed the dynamics in uh, the village. Shine, 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 shine,
Strike is a documentary about the 2019 school strike for climate. Over 150,000 students plus workers and supporters were there in cities all around Australia. Rob Innes made the film and with him on this Zoom call is one of the students, Maisha from Melbourne. Welcome to the Climate Action Show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thanks, Rob, look, the raw material for this film was made by 12 students vlogging. Would you explain how you organised this? Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a logistical problem that we had with, with this one. But I guess with, with vlogging, once we had the cast locked in and who, were, who we were working with, it was a matter of guiding them and helping them record their own stories. So giving them kind of pointers to things of what they could talk about, how they could film, what their kind of story points in their lives was, and building that relationship so that they felt they were, you know, working with a level of trust that we would respect what they were filming and what their what their story was as well. And so we had the 12 students from all around Australia filming these videos, and then they would record them and send them to us, and we'd bring them in, and we just had tens of hours of footage yeah. to kind of roll through to try to then go, okay, what is the stories and what kind of, what takes us on a journey, you know, across this time? Well, that's what I'm interested. What themes emerged from the students' reports? I guess it was themes of obviously climate change was the big one, um, youth representation, um, how young people were included, well, in fact, not included in the discussion on things that directly affected them. And there was a lot of on school on mental health, on marketing and promotion, like how do you organise, you know, an event like this and this kind of movement. So there's a lot of kind of movement building, but also just like everyday things that a student would have to deal with, with, you know, homework and how do you balance your life and your studies with this huge kind of movement that they were building. Oh, definitely. It's very quick editing. I really liked it when listeners, when you can go and see this film at Transition Film Festival, you'll see it's all very sharp editing and all these kids appear, Townsville, Melbourne, Sydney, you know, like it's all bits and pieces of them, but the themes do emerge. Yep. Maisha, you were in the year 12 that year. You were the MC at one of the strike rallies. How did the experience, the whole experience, how did it affect you? There must have been ups and downs, but overall, how did it affect you? I found it a very rewarding experience. I was in Year 12, and the day of the strike, I was supposed to have an assessment, so we call them SACs here in Melbourne um, as part of our VC, so it's about 6 to 10% of our final mark. And I was trying to negotiate with my school to reset it on another day. But since a strike isn't a school-approved event, I wasn't able to reschedule it. So leading up to the day, it was incredibly stressful at times, trying to juggle my Year 12 commitments, um, studying for the SAC, preparing for it alongside organising and talking to journalists every other day. But I think at the end of the day, I learned so much about organising and managing my time, um, something I found quite pertinent in university, um, being part of student politics um, and other volunteer work as well. And I think at the end of the day, um, it teaches us lifelong skills, and that's what's really important. Mm. Well, that's a valuable experience. And it, it, when you watch this film, you realise just how young some of the people are, and they're very competent. <laughs> I'll give them the vote yeah. straight away. <laughs> Maisha, you said that, Climate action has united your generation, but has the COVID year deactivated a lot of young people around climate, I think especially at university? I would probably say COVID's brought us together in some ways, um, in ways we never expected, so definitely over social media. I was thinking about this this morning, actually. Social media both connects us and disconnects us. It connects us in the way that we're always sharing a huge volume of information online, especially around the Black Lives Matter movement. We're sharing resources for donations, taking actions, um, going to the protests, your legal rights, etc. But at the same time, COVID has shown us that social media can disconnect us. Um, we're physically apart, and obviously that will change as restrictions ease. But I think it has united us because we crave that social contact. We crave to be intellectually connected and physically present as well. And so looking forward for you know future protests and movements, I think young people are going to be even more engaged because they thrive off that environment of being in a space where they're both intellectually stimulated and they're around their peers as well. So Coming into university, I'm trying to engender that culture a bit more and hopefully we'll be seeing that over the next couple of years. But what about climate change? It hasn't gone away and even though COVID saw a little bit of a drop in emissions, you know, the problem is still so urgent. Mm. Um, 
I think I was telling you before about Joelle Gerges, Gerges, who's a famous climate scientist, and she's been talking about her dismay at this generation of university students who don't seem to be turned on to the urgency of it. And I'd say it's the other way around. Um, might be because of my generation, a lot of the people in my cohort have been part of the school strike movement or have attended the strikes. Um, I find a lot of people quite progressive and they're really empowered to create change, but they don't have the skill set or they don't know how to create um, create the change they want to see because of existing institutions, because of that glass ceiling. And I think a lot of the questions shouldn't be around why aren't young people taking action? Because we do want to take action. It's that there aren't enough mentors out there who are teaching us the ropes of how to create change. And I think that's a conversation we should have rather than, you know, young people aren't progressive enough or aren't emboldened or taking action. Rob, your fast editing, I, I really quite liked it. It was an exciting film to watch. Kind of like the, you felt kind of the adrenaline flowing as you're watching this film. But it gave me glimpses of adults that were worrying. Some were very helpful, like school principals who did respect the students and did sort of make it easy for them to take the time off. But And parents who loved their kids for fighting for justice and talked around the kitchen table about justice and you know, human rights and the environment and all of that. But there were others who said they were being, the students were being brainwashed and that climate change wasn't real and the kids should just go back to school, including our prime minister saying that. How did this backlash affect everyone involved, these students, but also yourselves doing the editing? How did those adults um, affect you, the backlash ones? Unfortunately, we can't win them all over. I mean, their comments and how they were reacting actually helped inspire the whole project from the get-go because I remember, um, I think Maisha was one of the first um, young people I actually spoke to in the movement. And when I, it was around the same time as I think it was Matt Canavan who said a couple of things about you know, learning to line up in the doll queue or whatever it was he said. And, and I remember a lot of media kind of talking about the young people and in quite a negative way, but it was just completely the opposite experience that I was having. When I was talking to them, they were articulate, they were thoughtful, they were mature, and they had kind of, they'd given a lot of thought to all of the arguments and they had, they had done their research. And I think that's a big difference between previous generations is that, you know, this is a generation that, that he's growing up connected with everyone around the world and can jump on Google and, and find out what they want to find out within a few minutes. And we, like, I'm not that much older, but I didn't have that when I was in high school. And so I think those comments, you know, compared to what was the reality of it, were just what drove us to make this film in this particular way, to make sure that young people were leading the voice and that it was from their perspective, that we weren't making a film about them, we were making it with them. I think that was the big, the big key. And so I think, I don't know if it got to any of them in a, in a negative way. I think maybe it more drove them even further and inspired them even further. I remember speaking to one of the school strikers, a young girl, I think she's about 13. And I said, how yep. do you focus on this? How do you cope with this backlash from me? I'd be collapsing in tears. I couldn't bear one of those comments addressed to me. And she said, oh, we sit around in a group and we laugh at them. We read them out loud and we laugh at them. Laughter is the best medicine, right? Well, you can either laugh or cry. And I think if we choose to laugh, it's it's a lot more healthier. I don't want to think too much about how disappointed young people might be in the adults who've betrayed them on every level. This is my generation who've just let it ride. And also I meet adults who say, oh, well, you know, it's wonderful what the young people are doing. Let's leave it to them. I think that's pathetic because these young people are not in power. We still have a lot of time for adults to make a difference. For sure. Isn't Measure the film? makes us aware that the people on strike had no vote. And you said at the very end with a beaming smile, this is what democracy looks like. You really looked like you really felt it, you were feeling it. What ideas do you have now about getting more people to participate in climate decisions? It's a really tough question. There's so many answers to it. Um, I think recently one of the things I've been focusing on has been the financial aspect of creating climate climate action um, and addressing a lot of our environmental issues. Um, so looking at things like moving your money and make, voting with your money, so changing your banks, changing your super, I think that's something adults could definitely do. In terms of being part of environmental decisions, I think young people need to take up more roles um, at the decision-making table. So we're looking at a lot of things like student politics, um, being part of organisations, 
um, in kind of a youth capacity, so on their boards having positions for young people um, and then kind of offering a youth perspective and talking about their concerns, not just climate change but also mental health and issues we face as a generation in terms of financial stress, um, not being able to enter the property market and things like that. So I, I think that's going to be my avenue of change. That's what I would like to do. Each person has their own way. Other people are looking at more radical um, activism, which is their option, and I totally um, support that. Other people are looking at going into politics and creating change through that avenue, um, but I'm definitely focusing on the more economic side of things and seeing how we can create more long-lasting institutional change. Rob, to finish with, I know a lot of people see this youth uprising as the best thing that's happened to the climate movement and they will love your film. But what do you think the youth want from us? I think they, I mean, I can't speak for them because no. I'm not, a, I don't know if I'm a youth anymore, but um, I think they would like our support and they would like our ears. You know, they want to be listened and we should be, we should be listening and we should be including them in decision making. Like there's, um, there's been a few, few reports made by, the Australian, um, the FYA, the youth, you know, um, for Australia. And they were, um, they spoke about how little young people are included in the media and included it in, you know, discussions around issues that directly af- affect them. And I think the least we could do for young people is include them in the issues that are directly affecting them and not making the decisions for them, but making them with them. Mm. Well, with this, um, uh, community radio station where I broadcast, we have younger people, you know, being trained up and broadcasting. And I wonder where else in the media would young people get a voice like that? Journalists. Yeah, I, th- I mean, think the internet is a big, is a big equalizer too. You know, there's quite a few youth platforms. You know, there's Junkie, which, you know, is one of our partners on this. Um, there's, you know, others that are similar to that where young people do get to have a say and they are involved and they are writing and they're getting to share their, their thoughts and opinions. So the traditional media has been pretty slow to, in that, in that area, but I think the internet and the kind of new age stuff is, is really, you know, taking the lead. Okay. Well, we just better finish. Maisha, last word to you. Um, I, I want to ask you, what do you want to say to adults with power? But maybe you can just say what you want to say. Say what you want to say to our, Oh my. listeners, some of them who are adults with power. <laughs> <laughs> I think the first thing that I have to say is please share your power with young people. We want to be part of our futures. We want to build our futures and make sure that we have input in the futures we want to create. And part of that is being able to be at the decision-making table. And that isn't just as a quota or just to be there because we're young, but because you genuinely value our knowledge, our perspective, and you want us to actually lead the change that we talk about. At the end of the day, a lot of these people in power, they're not going to be around to see the worst of climate change or to see what we're going to be going through um, in an emotional capacity and a financial capacity as well. And I think that we need to have those skill sets. We need to have that power with us in order to create that change that we want to see. So make sure you do value what we have to say and that you are upskilling us and giving us tangible ways to create change and not just leaving us as a quota or a number on a piece of paper. Yeah, it's not ticking a box, is it? Because this is about survival. Well, thank you very much to both of you, Rob Innes and Maisha from Melbourne, who uh, um, participated in this film called Youth on Strike, which you can see at Transitions Film Festival. It's online this year, so anyone can see it anywhere in Australia, Youth on Strike. Thank you both. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Vivian. You've been listening to the Climate Action Show at 3CR and Radio Skid Row. Thanks to our guests tonight, Tejapala Rawls, Fahima Badruhishan and Dr Byron Smith. You can join their Year of Action by going to the ARC website. That's A-R-R-C-C dot org forward slash global. And you can sign a statement there sounding the alarm. And then maybe you'll take further action by getting involved. Thanks also to filmmakers Emmanuel Kaplan, Nathan Harvey and Rob Innes plus Maisha. Go to the Transitions Film Festival website and get tickets to see your films online. The films we talked about tonight are Once You Know, Beyond Zero 
and Youth on Strike. Thank you to Michaela, Raoul and Andy for helping me get this show to air. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck.